Conan and Friends, a fantasy pulp fiction audiobook podcast. Voice characterizations and sound design by Audiodrama.ai. Episode 8. Solomon Kane. Wings in the Night. By Robert E. Howard. Part 1 of 2. Chapter 1. The Horror on the Stake. Solomon Kane leaned on his strangely carved staff and gazed in scowling perplexity at the mystery which spread silently before him. Many a deserted village Kane had seen in the months that had passed since he turned his face east from the slave coast and lost himself in the mazes of jungle and river. But never one like this. It was not famine that had driven away the inhabitants. For yonder the wild rice still grew rank and unkempt in the untilled fields. There were no Arab slave raiders in this nameless land. It must have been a tribal war that devastated the village, Cain decided, as he gazed somberly at the scattered bones and grinning skulls that littered the space among the rank weeds and grasses. These bones were shattered and splintered, and Cain saw jackals and a hyena furtively slinking among the ruined huts. But why had the slayers left the spoils? There lay war spears, their shafts crumbling before the attacks of the white ants. There lay shields, moldering in the rains and sun. There lay the cooking pots, and about the neck bones of a shattered skeleton glistened a necklace of gaudily painted pebbles and shells. Surely rare loot for any savage conqueror. He gazed at the huts, wondering why the thatch roofs of so many were torn and rent as if by taloned things, seeking entrance. Then something made his cold eyes narrow in startled unbelief. Just outside the moldering mound that was once the village wall towered a gigantic biobab tree, branchless for sixty feet, its mighty bowl too large to be gripped and scaled. Yet in the topmost branches dangled a skeleton, apparently impaled on a broken limb. The cold hand of mystery touched the shoulder of Solomon Cain. How came those pitiful remains in that tree? Had some monstrous ogre's inhuman hand flung them there? Cain shrugged his broad shoulders, and his hand unconsciously touched the black butts of his heavy pistols, the hilt of his long rapier, and the dirk in his belt. Cain felt no fear as an ordinary man would feel, confronted with the unknown and nameless. Years of wandering in strange lands and warring with strange creatures had melted away from brain, soul, and body, all that was not steel and whalebone. He was tall and spare, almost gaunt, built with the savage economy of the wolf, broad-shouldered, long-armed, with nerves of ice and views of spring steel. He was no less the natural killer than the born swordsman. The brambles and thorns of the jungle had dealt hardly with him. His garments hung in tatters. His featherless slouch hat was torn, and his boots of cordovan leather were scratched and worn. The sun had baked his chest and limbs to a deep bronze, but his ascetically lean face was impervious to its rays. His complexion was still of that strange dark pallor, which gave him an almost corpse-like appearance, belied only by his cold, light eyes. And now, Cain, sweeping the village once more with his searching gaze, pulled his belt into a more comfortable position, shifted to his left hand the cat-headed stave Anlonga had given him, and took up his way again. 
To the west lay a strip of thin forest, sloping downward to a broad belt of savannas, a waving sea of grass, waist-deep and deeper. Beyond that rose another narrow strip of woodlands, deepening rapidly into dense jungle. Out of that jungle, Cain had fled like a hunted wolf with pointed-toothed men hot on his trail. Even now, a vagrant breeze brought faintly the throb of a savage drum, which whispered its obscene tale of hate and blood hunger and belly lust across miles of jungle and grassland. The memory of his flight and narrow escape was vivid in Cain's mind. For only the day before had he realized too late that he was in cannibal country, and all that afternoon in the reeking stench of the thick jungle, he had crept and run and hidden and doubled and twisted on his track with the fierce hunters ever close behind him until night fell and he gained and crossed the grasslands under cover of darkness. Now, in the late morning, he had seen nothing, heard nothing of his pursuers. Yet he had no reason to believe that they had abandoned the chase. They had been close on his heels when he took to the savannas, so Cain surveyed the land in front of him. To the east, curving from north to south, ran a straggling range of hills, for the most part dry and barren, rising in the south to a jagged black skyline that reminded Cain of the black hills of Nagari. Between him and these hills stretched a broad expanse of gently rolling country, thickly treed but nowhere approaching the density of a jungle. Cain got the impression of a vast upland plateau, bounded by the curving hills to the east and by the savannas to the west. Cain set out for the hills with his long, swinging, tireless stride. Surely somewhere behind him, the black demons were stealing after him, and he had no desire to be driven to bay. A shot might send them flying in sudden terror, but on the other hand, so low they were in the scale of humanity, it might transmit no supernatural fear to their dull brains. And not even Solomon Cain whom Sir Francis Drake had called Devon's King of Swords, could win in a pitched battle with a whole tribe. The silent village with its burden of death and mystery faded out behind him. Utter silence reigned among these mysterious uplands where no birds sang and only a silent macaw flitted among the great trees. The only sounds were Cain's cat-like tread and the whisper of the drum-haunted breeze. And then... Cain caught a glimpse among the trees that made his heart leap with a sudden, nameless horror. And a few moments later, he stood before horror itself, stark and grisly. In a wide clearing, on a rather bold incline, stood a grim stake. And to this stake was bound a thing that had once been a black man. Cain had rode, chained to the bench of a Turkish galley, and he had toiled in Barbary vineyards. He had battled Red Indians in the New Lands and had languished in the dungeons of Spain's Inquisition. He knew much of the fiendishness of man's inhumanity, but now he shuddered and grew sick. Yet it was not so much the ghastliness of the mutilations, horrible as they were, that shook Cain's soul, but the knowledge that the wretch still lived. For as he drew near... The gory head that lolled on the butchered breast lifted and tossed from side to side, spattering blood from the stumps of ears, while a bestial, rattling whimper drooled from the shredded lips. Cain spoke to the ghastly thing and it screamed unbearably, 
writhing in incredible contortions, while its head jerked up and down with the jerking of mangled nerves, and the empty, gaping eye sockets seemed striving to see from their emptiness, and moaning low and brain-shatteringly. It huddled its outraged self against the stake where it was bound and lifted its head in a grisly attitude of listening, as if it expected something out of the skies. Listen, said Cain, in the dialect of the river tribes. Do not fear me. I will not harm you and nothing else shall harm you anymore. I am going to loose you. Even as he spoke, Cain was bitterly aware of the emptiness of his words. But his voice had filtered dimly into the crumbling, agony-shot brain of the black man. From between splintered teeth fell words, faltering and uncertain, mixed and mingled with the slavering droolings of imbecility. He spoke a language akin to the dialects Cain had learned from friendly river folk on his wanderings. And Cain gathered that he had been bound to the stake for a long time, many moons. He whimpered in the delirium of approaching death. And all this time, inhuman, evil things had worked their monstrous will upon him. These things he mentioned by name, but Cain could make nothing of it, for he used an unfamiliar term that sounded like akana. But these things had not bound him to the stake, for the torn wretch slavered the name of Goru, who was a priest and who had drawn a cord too tight about his legs. And Cain wondered that the memory of this small pain should linger through the red mazes of agony, that the dying man should whimper over it. And to Cain's horror, the black spoke of his brother, who had aided in the binding of him, and he wept with infantile sobs and moisture formed in the empty sockets and made tears of blood. And he muttered of a spear broken long ago in some dim hunt, and while he muttered in his delirium, Cain gently cut his bonds and eased his broken body to the grass. But even at the Englishman's careful touch, the poor wretch writhed and howled like a dying dog, while blood started anew from a score of ghastly gashes, which, Cain noted, were more like the wounds made by fang and talon than by knife or spear. But at last it was done, and the bloody torn thing lay on the soft grass with Cain's old slouch hat beneath its death's head, breathing in great rattling gasps. Cain poured water from his canteen between the mangled lips and bending close said, Tell me more of these devils, for by the God of my people, this deed shall not go unavenged, though Satan himself bar my way. It is doubtful if the dying man heard. But he heard something else. The macaw, with the curiosity of its breed, swept from a nearby grove and passed so close its great wings fanned Cain's hair. And at the sound of those wings, the butchered black man heaved upright and screamed in a voice that haunted Cain's dreams to the day of his death. The wings. The wings. The wings. They come again. Ah, mercy. The wings and the blood burst in a torrent from his lips. And so he died. Cain rose and wiped the cold sweat from his forehead. The upland forest shimmered in the noonday heat. Silence lay over the land like an enchantment of dreams. Cain's brooding eyes ranged to the black, malevolent hills crouching in the distance and back to the faraway savannas. An ancient curse lay over that mysterious land 
and the shadow of it fell across the soul of Solomon Cain. Tenderly, he lifted the red ruin that had once pulsed with life and youth and vitality and carried it to the edge of the glade, where arranging the cold limbs as best he might, and shuddering once again at the unnameable mutilations, he piled stones above it, till even a prowling jackal would find it hard to get at the flesh below. And he had scarcely finished when something jerked him back out of his somber broodings to a realization of his own position. A slight sound, or his own wolf-like instinct, made him whirl. On the other side of the glade, he caught a movement among the tall grasses. The glimpse of a hideous black face, with an ivory ring in the flat nose. Thick lips parted to reveal teeth, whose filed points were apparent even at that distance. Beady eyes and a low slanting forehead, topped by frizzly hair. Even as the face faded from view, Cain leaped back into the shelter of the ring of trees, which circled the glade and ran like a deer hound, flitting from tree to tree and expecting each moment to hear the exultant clamor of the braves and to see them break cover at his back. But soon he decided that they were content to hunt him down, as certain beasts track their prey. Slowly and inevitably, he hastened through the upland forest, taking advantage of every bit of cover, and he saw no more of his pursuers. Yet he knew, as a hunted wolf knows, that they hovered close behind him, waiting their moment to strike him down without risk to their own hides. Cain smiled bleakly and without mirth. If it was to be a test of endurance, he would see how savage Thuz compared with his own spring steel resilience. Let night come, and he might yet give them the slip. If not, Cain knew in his heart that the savage essence of the Anglo-Saxon which chafed at his flight would make him soon turn at bay, though his pursuers outnumbered him a hundred to one. The sun sank westward. Cain was hungry, for he had not eaten since early morning when he wolfed down the last of his dried meat. An occasional spring had given him water, and once he thought he glimpsed the roof of a large hut far away through the trees. But he gave it a wide berth. It was hard to believe that this silent plateau was inhabited, but if it were, the natives were doubtless as ferocious as those hunting him. Ahead of him, the land grew rougher, with broken boulders and steep slopes as he neared the lower reaches of the brooding hills. And still... No sight of his hunters except for faint glimpses caught by wary backward glances. A drifting shadow, the bending of the grass, the sudden straightening of a trodden twig, a rustle of leaves. Why should they be so cautious? Why did they not close in and have it over? Night fell, and Cain reached the first long slopes which led upward to the foot of the hills, which now brooded black and menacing above him. They were his goal where he hoped to shake off his persistent foes at last. Yet a nameless aversion warned him away from them. They were pregnant with hidden evil, repellent as the coil of a great sleeping serpent glimpsed in the tall grass. Darkness fell heavily. The stars winked redly in the thick heat of the tropic night. And Cain, halting for a moment in an unusually dense grove, beyond which the trees thinned out on the slopes, heard a stealthy movement that was not the night wind for no breath of air stirred the heavy leaves. And even as he turned, there was a rush in the dark, under the trees, a 
A shadow that merged with the shadows flung itself on Cain with a bestial mouthing and a rattle of iron. And the Englishman, parrying by the gleam of the stars on the weapon, felt his assailant duck into close quarters and meet him chest to chest. Lean, wiry arms locked about him. Pointed teeth gnashed at him as Cain returned the fierce grapple. His tattered shirt ripped beneath a jagged edge. And by blind chance, Cain found and pinioned the hand that held the iron knife and drew his own dirk, flesh crawling in anticipation of a spear in the back. But even as the Englishman wondered why the others did not come to their comrade's aid, he threw all of his iron muscles into the single combat. Close clenched, they swayed and writhed in the darkness, each striving to drive his blade into the other's flesh. And as the superior strength of the white man began to assert itself, the cannibal holed like a rabid dog, tore and bit. A convulsive spin wheel of effort pivoted them out into the starlit glade where Cain saw the ivory nose ring and the pointed teeth that snapped, beast-like at his throat. And simultaneously, he forced back and down the hand that gripped his knife wrist and drove the dirk deep into the black ribs. The warrior screamed, and the raw, acrid scent of blood flooded the night air. And in that instant, Cain was stunned by a sudden savage rush and beat of mighty wings that dashed him to earth, and the black man was torn from his grip and vanished with a scream of mortal agony. Cain leaped to his feet, shaken to his foundation. The dwindling scream of the wretched black sounded faintly and from above him, straining his eyes into the skies. He thought he caught a glimpse of a shapeless and horrific thing crossing the dim stars in which the writhing limbs of a human mingled namelessly with great wings and a shadowy shape. But so quickly it was gone, he could not be sure. And now he wondered if it were not all a nightmare. But groping in the grove, he found the juju stave with which he had parried the short stabbing spear, which lay beside it. And here, if more proof was needed, was his long dirk, still stained with blood, wings, wings in the night the skeleton in the village of torn roofs the mutilated black man whose wounds were not made with knife or spear and who died shrieking of wings surely those hills were the haunt of gigantic birds who made humanity their prey yet if birds why had they not wholly devoured the black man on the stake and cain knew in his heart that no true bird ever cast such a shadow as he had seen flit across the stars. He shrugged his shoulders, bewildered. The night was silent. Where were the rest of the cannibals who had followed him from their distant jungle? Had the fate of their comrade frightened them into flight? Cain looked to his pistols. Cannibals or no, he went not up into those dark hills that night. Now he must sleep if all the devils of the elder world were on his track. A deep roaring to the westward, warned him that beasts of prey were a roam, and he walked rapidly down the rolling slopes until he came to a dense grove, some distance from that in which he had fought the cannibal. He climbed high among the great branches until he found a thick crotch that would accommodate even his tall frame. The branches above would guard him from a sudden swoop of any winged thing, and if savages were lurking near, their clamber into the tree would warn him for he slept lightly as a cat. As for serpents and leopards, 
They were chances he had taken a thousand times. Solomon Cain slept, and his dreams were vague, chaotic, haunted with a suggestion of pre-human evil, and which at last merged into a vision vivid as a scene in waking life. Solomon dreamed he woke with a start, drawing a pistol. For so long had his life been that of the wolf, that reaching for a weapon was his natural reaction upon waking suddenly. And his dream was that a strange, shadowy thing had perched upon a great branch close by and gazed at him with greedy, luminous yellow eyes that seared into his brain. The dream thing was tall and lean and strangely misshapen, so blended with the shadows that it seemed a shadow itself, tangible only in the narrow yellow eyes. And Cain dreamed he waited, spellbound, while uncertainty came into those eyes. And then the creature walked out on the limb as a man would walk, raised great shadowy wings, sprang into space, and vanished. Then Cain jerked upright, the mists of sleep fading. In the dim starlight, under the arching, gothic-like branches, the tree was empty save for himself. Then it had been a dream after all. Yet it had been so vivid, so fraught with inhuman foulness. Even now... A faint scent like that exuded by birds of prey seemed to linger in the air. Cain strained his ears. He heard the sighing of the night wind, the whisper of the leaves, the faraway roaring of a lion, but naught else. Again, Solomon slept, while high above him a shadow wheeled against the stars, circling again and again as a vulture circles a dying wolf. Chapter 2 the battle in the sky. Dawn was spreading whitely over the eastern hills when Cain woke. The thought of his nightmare came to him, and he wondered again at its vividness as he climbed down out of the tree. A nearby spring slaked his thirst and some fruit, rare in these highlands, eased his hunger. Then he turned his face again to the hills. A Finnish fighter was Solomon Cain. Along that grim skyline dwelt some evil foe to the sons of men, and that mere fact was as much a challenge to the Puritan as had ever been a glove thrown in his face by some hot-headed gallant of Devon. Refreshed by his night's sleep, he set out with his long, easy stride, passing the grove that had witnessed the battle in the night, and coming into the region where the trees thinned at the foot of the slopes. Up these slopes he went, halting for a moment to gaze back over the way he had come. Now that he was above the plateau, he could easily make out a village in the distance. A cluster of mud and bamboo huts with one unusually large hut, a short distance from the rest on a sort of low knoll. And while he gazed with a sudden rush of grisly wings, the terror was upon him. Cain whirled, galvanized. All signs had pointed to the theory of a winged thing that hunted by night. He had not expected attack in broad daylight. But here, a bat-like monster was swooping at him out of the very eye of the rising sun. Cain saw a spread of mighty wings, from which glared a horribly human face. Then he drew and fired with unerring aim, and the monster veered wildly in midair and came whirling and tumbling out of the sky to crash at his feet. Cain leaned forward, pistol smoking in his hand, and gazed wide-eyed. Surely this thing was a demon out of the black pits of hell, said the somber mind of the Puritan. 
yet a leaden ball had slain it. Kane shrugged his shoulders, baffled. The thing was like a man, inhumanly tall and inhumanly thin. The head was long, narrow, and hairless. The head of a predatory creature. The ears were small, close-set, and queerly pointed. The eyes, set in death, were narrow, oblique, and of a strange yellowish color. The nose was thin and hooked, like the beak of a bird of prey. The mouth a wide, cruel gash, whose thin lips writhed in a death snarl and flecked with foam. Disclosed wolfish fangs. The creature, which was naked and hairless, was not unlike a human being in other ways. The shoulders were broad and powerful, the neck long and lean. The arms were long and muscular, the thumb being set beside the fingers after the manner of the great apes. Fingers and thumbs were armed with heavy hooked talons. The chest was curiously misshapen, the breastbone jutting out like the keel of a ship, the ribs curving back from it. The legs were long and wiry, with huge hand-like, prehensile feet, the great toe set opposite the rest like a man's thumb. The claws on the toes were merely long nails. But the most curious feature of this curious creature was on its back, a pair of great wings, shaped much like the wings of a moth, but with a bony frame and of leathery substance, grew from its shoulders, beginning at a point just back and above where the arms joined the shoulders, and extending halfway to the narrow hips. These wings, Kane reckoned, would measure some 18 feet from tip to tip. He laid hold on the creature, involuntarily shuddering at the slick, hard leather-like feel of the skin, and half lifted it. The weight was little more than half as much as it would have been in a man the same height. Some six and a half feet. Evidently, the bones were of a peculiar bird-like structure, and the flesh consisted almost entirely of stringy muscles. Kane stepped back, surveying the thing again. Then his dream had been no dream after all. That foul thing, or another like it, had in grisly reality lighted in the tree beside him. A whir of mighty wings. A sudden rush through the sky. Even as Cain whirled, he realized he had committed the jungle fair's unpardonable crime. He had allowed his astonishment and curiosity to throw him off guard. Already, a winged fiend was at his throat, and there was no time to draw and fire his other pistol. Cain saw, in a maze of thrashing wings, a devilish, semi-human face. He felt those wings battering at him. He felt cruel talons sink deep into his breast. Then he was dragged off his feet and felt empty space beneath him. The winged man had wrapped his limbs about the Englishman's legs and the talons he had driven into Cain's breast muscles, held like fanged vices. The wolf-like fangs drove at Cain's throat, but the Puritan gripped the bony throat and thrust back the grisly head, while with his right hand he strove to draw his dirk. The birdman was mounting slowly, and a fleeting glance showed Kane that they were already high above the trees. The Englishman did not hope to survive this battle in the sky, for even if he slew his foe, he would be dashed to death in the fall. But with the innate ferocity of the fighting Anglo-Saxon, he set himself grimly to take his captor with him. Holding those keen fangs at bay, Kane managed to draw his dirk, and he plunged it deep into the body of the monster. 
the Batman veered wildly and a rasping, raucous screech burst from his half-throttled throat. He floundered wildly, beating frantically with his great wings, bowing his back and twisting his head fiercely in a vain effort to free it and sink home his deadly fangs. He sank the talons of one hand, agonizingly deeper and deeper into Kane's breast muscles, while with the other he tore at his foe's head and body. But the Englishman, gashed and bleeding, with the silent and tenacious savagery of a bulldog, sank his fingers deeper into the lean neck and drove his dirk home again and again, while far below awed eyes watched the fiendish battle that was raging at that dizzy height. They had drifted out over the plateau, and the fast weakening wings of the Batman barely supported their weight. They were sinking earthward, swiftly, but Kane, blinded with blood and battle fury, knew nothing of this. With a great piece of his scalp hanging loose, his chest and shoulders cut and ripped. The world had become a blind red thing in which he was aware of but one sensation. The bulldog urged to kill his foe. Now, the feeble and spasmodic beating of the dying monster's wings held them hovering for an instant above a thick grove of gigantic trees, while Cain felt the grip of claws and twining limbs grow weaker and the slashing of the talons become a futile flailing. With a last burst of power, he drove the reddened dirk straight through the breastbone and felt a convulsive tremor run through the creature's frame. The great wings fell limp, and Victor and Vanquished dropped headlong and plummet-like earthward through a red wave. Cain saw the waving branches rushing up to meet them. He felt them flail his face and tear at his clothing as still locked in that death clinch. He rushed downward through leaves, which eluded his vainly grasping hand. Then his head crashed against a great limb, and an endless abyss of blackness engulfed him. Thank you for listening. Conan and Friends is an In Shambles production. 